Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. It's been a really interesting uh, sort of period for planning for the beginning of the year. Um, Normally, uh, as the year begins around this time, how sort of Melbourne works is you have this mass exodus of the city. People go on holidays. People completely shut down around January. So you're always sort of trying to work out when are people back? You get lots of visitors, but then there's lots of people away. So normally this weekend is when you sort of start to set out the stall of what you see the vision that God wants to do through uh, a church. And it's been really interesting this year because almost in a sense, you know, once bitten, twice shy, the last couple of years, um, this whole plan has gone out the window. And in 2021, we were like, you know, do we do this? 2022, there was this sense of like wanting to kick off the year, but then we had these really weird staggered starts to the year where the usual patterns were just just not there. However, last week um, I was in the city and it's been interesting visiting the city um, and I was getting a coffee on a Saturday morning in the city and just seeing the city slowly come back to life. And last week being there, it was sunny on a Saturday. I got a coffee and no one's there, uh, which was a new development because there were periods when you go in the city and you can just sit down and no one's there. Uh, I waited for my coffee. I sat there and I looked around and I noticed that, wow, there's lots of people. The tennis was on. I think Elton John had just played as well. And it was this really weird feeling like, I think we're back. I think Melbourne is back. And so it's this sense where finally you can sort of get back into the normal rhythms of life. So here we are, we're gonna do a vision series and we're finally back in the groove. So give yourself a round of applause for being back in the groove as a city. So let's begin with scripture. Let's uh, actually, we're going to stand to read the scripture, which is going to set us going forward. And uh, this is a scripture that comes from Matthew 4, the beginnings of the Gospels. And we're going to read it together, but we're not going to do it like the Mr. Bean sketch. (laughs) We're actually going to do it uh, with the belief that this is the word of God. And as we speak this, we bring new life and receive new life uh, as we hear and receive this. So let's begin. As Jesus This is the word of the Lord. Grab a seat. It was actually cool. There was a race between the two sides of the room. Probably you couldn't pick that up, but it was like one side was trying to beat the other. I won't say who won. Uh, We'll leave that for next time. Here we have this story. A group of men in their workplace. They see Jesus and Jesus makes this call, come follow me. 
And there's this very dramatic ending of one chapter of their lives and a beginning of another as they respond to this call. Now, it seems incredibly abrupt. When we read John's gospel, we can see that there's been some, a bit of a story behind this. Some of the disciples of Jesus were possibly followers of John, or they were followers of John, and, and obviously there's been conversations and so on. But what Matthew, and we have to ask them of this story, is bring this down to the bare bones. And we have to ask the question in the way that Matthew presents it, in what Jesus was asking Peter, Andrew, James, and John, what's he asking the whole 12 in following him in? He was asking them to follow him, not just on a journey geographically, although that happens. He was asking them to follow him as disciples. Now, this is a word that we may have heard many millions of times before. Perhaps you've never really heard it before. But what does it mean when Jesus says, come follow me as his disciple? The biblical scholar Craig L. Bloomberg writes this. A disciple was an adherent or a follower of a master, an intimate companion in some common endeavor. And so it refers to the followers who were more dead devoted to Jesus than the large crowd, surrage of people that are following Jesus as well. So if we see the entourage of people that are following Jesus around in his gospel ministry, we see that there's the great crowd, and often that's referred to the crowd. There's other numbers. There's possibly like another 150 or maybe 200 people who are sort of deeper into it, a community following around Jesus. Then there's perhaps a 30, and then there's this 12. But what a disciple means, it's not just people sort of following Jesus as a crowd, seeing where it's going to turn next, the crowd, what they're interested in. Jesus is asking them to follow him in a very deliberate way. So to be a disciple was to be someone who followed Jesus closely, imitating him, learning from him, being with him, becoming like him, making him their prime focus. And this word focus is a key theme of this series that we want to give as we kick the year off. And the name of this series is Following is Focus. That's what the series is about. And we're going to dig into what that means and what that means to follow Jesus and what that means to do that in our moments. Now, often at the beginning, and I think at this start of vision sermon series, and I think at this start of the year, after everything that's happened, doesn't matter whether you followed Jesus for donkey's years or this is the first time in a church, the story that we've just read together is one that we need to hear because in a sense, the call that came to the disciples that day by the Sea of Galilee comes to us again at this moment. That story happened in a historical moment, but it keeps coming before us. No matter how devoted you feel you may be, that sense is we need to hear that call to follow him again. And that's key to the season we will have going forward. Now, what's interesting is there is another element to this call that Jesus makes. He says to them, come follow me. But then he adds this extra sentence 
And he says, and I will send you out to fish for people. The first one is pretty clear. Come follow me, be my disciple. But the second part is quite strange. And I will send you out to fish for people. The disciples are clearly fishermen. And these disciples are clearly engaged in the task of fishing. And Jesus is using a metaphor from the environment around them to speak a deeper spirit. What Matthew is getting. Craig Bloomberg helps us again here in understanding what Matthew is getting at, telling this story. He says this, Jesus makes a play on words based on Simon and Andrew's occupation. He is pointing out that just as fishermen try to gather fish from the sea, his disciples too will be trying to gather together other individuals who are willing to follow Jesus in radical obedience. So this call is twofold. First of all, it is to follow me with devotion, being close to me, Jesus is asking of the disciples. And secondly, this then flows into this kind of subcategory, this secondary effect, which is also you're going to do the same thing. You also are going to gather a community of disciples and the gathering of that community is the vision going forward from here for these disciples. Now, what's interesting as we reflect upon this, we need this call to come before us to set us up for our vision for the year. Now, you may have many visions for the year. You may be a New Year's resolution person. There's things that you may want to achieve. Perhaps there's things that have been put off for the last two or three years because of everything that's happened. But the sense that this story sets us as what is the prime focus of us as people who want to follow Jesus. What does this mean for us as interesting is as the church? Now, what's interesting is This call comes to the disciples in the context, the very context, the stage, if you like, is their work and their life. This doesn't happen in a grand temple. This happens literally in their workplace. This is the workplace of fishermen, and Jesus is referring to the very implements of their work. So to call them to discipleship is to leave behind the nets, the very thing that they are doing. Now, the details in the scripture are really important. It says this, they were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, for us today reading this, for many of us, this might not have the weight that it would at this time. The idea that you may leave home, that you may do a different kind of trade or job than your father is not that shocking to us today. We live in a world where it's very normal for people just to jet off and and do their own thing. But at this time, this is incredibly counter-cultural. What they were doing, what the call was coming to them to do was to leave behind their livelihood, their family traditions. That is so culture left the boat and their father is so culturally like fireworks to read at that time. We can miss this. They were called to walk away from their sense of identity. This was a huge thing for people in this time and place. Huge things to do to walk away from for the sake of Jesus. And so if we're going to respond to this call, if we're going to read this story and ask what it asks of us at the beginning of 2023, we must also ask a question. What is our Sea of Galilee? 
What is the cultural context in which we're called to follow Jesus? What are the cultural forces which shape us? The idea in the first century that you maintained the livelihood of your family, you passed down to traditions through doing an apprenticeship through the trade that your father did, if you're a man, and to walk away from that was so huge. But Jesus was inviting them into a new thing. So what's the new thing for us? What's our Sea of Galilee? What's our life situation that God calls us to? And what is the boat and perhaps the will of our earthly father that we perhaps are called away from? What are the traditions, the tribal identities that we're called to walk away from in order to follow Jesus? How do we ask that question in our day? They were next to the Sea of Galilee. Try and do that for a moment and ask the question, They were next to the Sea of Galilee. What's our sea? And I want to argue this morning that the sea that we stand by, that shapes how we view the world, that we're called to walk away from in our context, is actually the sea of endless possibilities and freedom. That for us to read this story, we've got to go from the Sea of Galilee to the sea of endless freedom. This is what defines our culture. Now, we also clean nets. To clean nets was to prepare this key tool that the fishermen had to go into the Sea of Galilee and get these vast hauls of fish, which was their livelihood. This was their entire purpose of what they did. This was the vision that had been given them by a culture in this part of the world to be who they were. That was their identity. They were fishermen. Our identity is a lot less shaped by what we do. Yes, it plays a part, still people at parties, or what do you do? But I actually think that there's a deeper, larger cultural influence on us. That we have nets, but our cultural nets, they're not seen, they're not, they're not physically there. But we have this belief that we can cast these nets out into the world and scoop up endless possibilities for ourselves, amenities. We can self-create options. We can have a smorgasbord of experiences. We can self-create. We can be who we want to be. We're just going to chuck that net out and pull it in, and you're going to have a bounty of these things in the sea of endless freedom. You see, we live in a very different kind of culture today, very different to the first century and very different to most cultures throughout history. Most cultures can be defined as should cultures. A should culture is a culture where it's very clear what you should and shouldn't be doing. For these disciples in the first century, there was a clear religious set of things that you should and shouldn't be doing. There was an entire Torah of laws and instructions which told you what to do. What to do when something becomes unclean, how to ritually make something clean, who to connect with. There were all kinds of things, even in in the Torah, there were things around what to do with mold, what to do with the skin irritation, how to go to the toilet during a war. It's in there. If you're ever wondering, the Bible has answers for every moment. But upon that too, there was all these other cultural things. There was this sense of what kind of job you should be doing, how you should be a whole bunch of stuff. You should be obeying your father, what your village life is like. There was this whole bunch of stuff you should and shouldn't do. Now, sociologists can sometimes call this the disciplinarian society. 
where if you step out of line of this very narrow band of options, you're going to be censured, you're going to be punished, perhaps you'll be exiled. There's this very thin road that everyone has to walk on, and there's people who guard that, and it's very clear when you go out of that lane, you're going to be disciplined. This is the world of should. This is true of the first century in, in Galilee. This is true of most human cultures throughout history, and it's actually true of our culture until probably like half century ago or before. But we no longer live in a should culture where you're oppressed in a sense or, or hemmed in by what you should and shouldn't be doing. We now live in a culture which is a can culture. You can be doing this. You can be becoming that. You can have it all. And you get oppressed or restricted or whatever less by what you shouldn't be, shouldn't be doing as the oppression that I could be doing all these things. I can become, I can have it all. It's a subtle shift, but it's a profoundly reshaping shift to understand who we are today. So people today less sit there and go, oh, I'm just totally hemmed in by my culture. Rather people sit there and see this vast horizon of things that they could be doing. Our problem is not a lack of freedom. Our problem is too much freedom. This is that felt sense where you sit down to relax and you're tired after work and you want to watch some television, so you turn on Netflix and 45 minutes later, you feel a slight anxiety stress as you're still toggling through options and there's just an endless array of movies and series that you could watch. And you know that, okay, I could start watching that series, but I know in watching that, I don't know, Swedish series about a murderer, that, that if I say yes to that, I mean, that's like, that's like, okay, one, okay, there's about 18 episodes, but that's like three seasons. That's like, that's like a full-time job if you're gonna binge that thing. You have this sense like, okay, I need a new shirt, I need a new pot plant, I need a new, a new wrench, that you're gonna go to the store and it's not gonna just be like 1927 where like, we've got one shirt, hopefully it fits, it's white. Henry Ford made the T-Model Ford and I think his classic line was back in the 1920s, yeah, you can have any color you want as long as it's black. That, that, that's what Fords were. They said one color, go to the car and you just had to pick it. Instead, you go to the store, and first of all, before you even go to the store, you're on your phone like, what are the options here? I'll do my research to make me less anxious so I can just get to the store and just buy. Doesn't help. You're just there for several days, like trying to find the best thing. You go to some app which helps you to find a better price, and then you're on like 17 different apps for the best airfare flight, and then you're looking at customer reviews, and wow, that's actually really good. Oh, hang on, that's a bad one. Um, and you just go through and troll this. Then you get to the store and there's endless, endless options. You want the shirt, that's a bit expensive. It's in trenry. <laughs> but I sort of know that if I wait for like three months, it's gonna be in Uniqlo, like half the price. They're just gonna copy the design. And so you get this sense that our problem is not what you should and shouldn't have. It's this endless wading through options. And this begins to apply not just to what we buy, to what we do. How do we spend our time? Who do we become? All of the decisions around your life, relationships, vocation, recreation, identity, all of these things now don't exist in a narrow bland. You can have any T-model forward you want as long as it's black. It is just endless expanse. 
And this sense of choice anxiety, this sense of exhaustion comes upon us. So this leads to a few outcomes. I just, I just hinted at one there. We become, in an environment of endless freedom, we become anxious, depressed, and burnt out. Our cultural problem today is increasingly a kind of burnout, but it's not necessarily like the burnout that Japanese businessmen experienced, say, in the 1980s and 90s, where they were like working 13-hour days and people were sleeping in the office. This is a burnout from just endlessly stuff happening and options before us and us trying to navigate all of the things without any guide. See, in a, in a, in a should culture, it is negatives, but one of the positives is it's very clear what you should be doing. Our culture offers you millions of possibilities that you could be doing, and this creates a burnout just from trying to navigate and have the discernment to work through all of this. So what this means is we become anxious, depressed, and burnt out. And what's interesting is in the disciplinarian society, in a sense, you're oppressed by the no. No, you should not be doing that. We are oppressed by the yes, yes, you can have it all but you can't really. Now, interesting, you could say that in a disciplinary should society, what happens is there's discipline and there's a repression, you shouldn't do those things. But in our can, you can have it all, endless freedom society, is that actually you're constantly stimulated, you're constantly seduced by things. But it doesn't repress our desires. Most societies throughout history have this concept whatever they are, almost whatever religion they are, tradition they are, that your desires, in a sense, if you just let them run wild, that it's going to be bad. Instead, our society actually doesn't order us to repress our desires. Instead, it overstimulates them, but for other people's purposes. So it wants to take the desires you have and it wants to use them and stimulate them, but then push them towards downloading that series push them towards spending money over there, push them towards this vision that this other person has. We're manipulated not by the big no, when manipulated by the yes, you can have it all, stimulate those desires. So the dominant powers of our day, its best ally for oppressing and exploiting us is actually our worst selves, what the scriptures called the flesh. We then self exploit ourselves. And this leaves us empty. We never arrive. We're always wanting more, but we're never satisfied. And so when this happens, the second thing then is we turn against ourselves. People rarely blame the system. People rarely see that their desires are being turned on ourselves. We have the possibility before us that we can achieve all these things. We can be wonderful at work. We can be the best mum or dad. We can have the best single life. We can have the best this, the best that, the best this, and we never get there. So instead of blaming a system which tantalizes us with endless freedom, we go, I'm rubbish. The culture of the can is in reality a high-performance culture. Dare I say, a high-performance cult. As a culture, we lord and champion, it's everywhere, equality and tolerance. But in reality, our operating system is pure and brutal competition and comparison. 
And this leads us to pursue constant achievement, adventure, experience, and consumption, leading us to a life in which we aggressively turn against ourselves when we're not achieving these things. We're offered freedom, but we actually go home and hide in shame. Now, what does this mean when you're then trying to follow Jesus? When the call to follow Jesus comes, how does this work against that? Well, in disciplinary cultures, should cultures which aren't Christian, you're blocked from following Jesus or it's shut down, blocked, roadblocks. Instead of being blocked from following Jesus, we're led astray. We're led astray. Bintrell Hahn is a German writer on culture, writes about the way that we're, in a sense, powers of our culture come against us. And he says this, it's really interesting when you think about this in the context of discipleship. Power that is smart and friendly. And that's what he says. He says, power today is not violent that comes against us, it's smart and friendly. It does not operate frontally, so it doesn't come against you, it's not obvious, i.e. against the will of those who are subject to it. Instead, it guides their will to its own benefit. It says yes more often than no. It operates seductively, not repressively. It seeks to call forth positive emotions and exploit them. It leads astray instead of erecting obstacles. What does this mean? This means that our culture won't overtly and physically stop you from following Jesus. Instead, it will offer you the endless sea of freedom, options, and experience. It will tell you, sure, follow Jesus, but follow all these amazing things at the same time. You can have it all. It's not going to put up roadblocks on the road of discipleship. Rather, it's going to offer you endless shiny off-ramps, well-lit with perfectly smooth bitumen. So the real threat against disciples in the West is not persecution, which so many in the church are worried about. It's seduction. So having gotten a lay of the land, our cultural land, our sea of endless freedom, I want to again read the passage we began with, understanding now the context in which we're called to apply that in our lives. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So what does this mean for us? Having laid out the culture, what does this mean for us? Firstly, in a culture of endless options, we are faced with the challenge of truly following. In today's culture of endless options and unlimited freedom, it can be difficult to focus upon what truly matters. We often want to follow many things at once, and we don't want to miss out on anything. We're constantly distracted, our energy is diffused, we become disconnected from the life we truly yearn for. Thus, for us in our context, following is focus. Following is focus. When the disciples saw Jesus, there was many options before them. Many options to keep staying in the boat, 
the will of their earthly father wanting them to continue the trade, what the people around them would have thought of them, what the religious leaders in the synagogue in the town would have thought. Before them, there was multiple, multiple options. And what they do at this moment, what following is, is focusing upon one option. Following is focus. So for us, this means we have to do this deliberately. We have to choose this proactively. Focus in our culture is actually a form of rebellion and our culture is set up to seduce, give you op ramps, distract you. So we have to begin by making a decision of understanding what true following is in a culture of endless options. To do this, what does this look like? Number two, to do this is in order to truly follow Jesus, we must put down our nets. What are the nets? What are the things that you're using, you're trying to grab onto? Is it the self-creation of your identity? Maybe you're a person who is all about, my identity is tied into achievement. Maybe you're a person who your identity is tied into recreation. Maybe your identity is that you have this sense that it's like a mirror. What you see in the people around you, you see how there's this deep concern of what they would think of you if you were to fully follow Jesus and become part of that intimate circle who are closest to him. What are our nets? This myth that we can have it all. Yes, you can follow Jesus, but you can have everything as well. Just imagine the sense, memory, the disciples had that roughness of nets, if you've ever held fishing nets, that sense that is almost like a second part of their body, this tool they use every day. It was almost like a part of them. And that image of putting it down and then sort of getting up and brushing themselves off and walking behind this, away from this boat into this new life that Jesus was calling them to. Our culture's net are not built to catch fish. They're built around the myth that we can sit on the shore, never having to dip our feet into the water, yet hauling in all the great experiences, options, pleasures, relationships. Our nets are also built to, to catch the elusive fish, our best self, made in our own strength. So in order to follow Jesus truly, we must put down our nets, let go of all the distractions and options and make a decision to focus on him. This is the true meaning of following Jesus. And lastly, when we choose to truly follow and focus upon Jesus, it is a yes to Jesus, but also it's a no. Following requires yes and a no. True following and focus starts with asking ourselves, what are the most important things and then committing to do those things. And if the most important thing is to be near Jesus, be close to Jesus, learn from Jesus, follow Jesus, we have to place that at the center of who we are and the life that God is creating in us. So it's, 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 that's the big, big yes. But it's not just a matter of saying yes to that. It's also saying no to other things. We cannot do it all. We must focus on what are the most essential things that Jesus is asking to do, us to do in order to fully follow him. And so to say yes to this, we have to say no to many things. If you are going to be a disciple, you're going to have to learn the art of saying no to the dream of having it all. To make Jesus our focus is to turn down other things which may be deeply stuff that our flesh may deeply, deeply desire.
The big yes to Jesus is it accompanied by the many no's. In 2018, Trudy and I went to London and had this really incredible afternoon, really, where we went and prayed. It was a whole day, really, prayed around different sites where God had moved and brought renewals and revivals. And one building we went to, which was the absolute highlight, was in East London, there's effectively what was known as the mission uh, of John Wesley, the great English evangelist. And they built this sort of base. It's almost like a compound. It's not like walled off or anything. But they built this base in East London and has a number of items. There's a chapel and there was a school and there were these classrooms where they did this, basically their, their version of pattern intensive, um, which they called societies, Sunday schools. And, and the idea, the actual word for class that we use in classrooms today goes back to East London when John Wesley talked about how do they divide people into these smaller groups based around uh, discipleship. And he took a word from Latin and this was the word class. And so we went there and we sort of went on the tour and we did the chant. She took us up to John Wesley's bedroom and next to his bedroom he's got this little prayer room and it was this incredible moment where uh, we <laughs> had this like kneeling uh, little thing where John Wesley had his Bible and he had this little kneeler I guess that's the word for it, a piece of furniture and I looked at it and it just dawned on me that this incredible revival which touched Britain and went all across the world had actually come from this moment and actually the prayers was the hinge. And that's literally where he prayed to stimulate this whole revival. Trudy and I were, were invited to pray there and we ended up praying with the, the, uh, the tour guide who takes people around. She was from Africa and had come to faith uh, at, at a church that had been planted out of people who followed John Wesley in Africa. It was her and it was these two Korean guys and just this weird moment where the tour turned into this prayer meeting of us five people from different parts of the world, Asia, Australia, Africa, all praying and we just began to pray for revival. When I went into Melbourne the other day and walked around the city and had a coffee and just that sense that Melbourne was coming back, one of the really interesting questions before me was, what's the hidden stories of faith in our city? What's the stories? That's the story in what's that about our city? So I actually had ordered this book a while ago about the history of, of early Christianity. It was written in like the end of the 19th century in Melbourne. And it's written by people who are actually followers of John Wesley in Melbourne as they set up. The first service ever in Melbourne was actually started by Methodists. And so I went into town. I knew there was a, a, a church called the Wesley Church, which is now a uniting church on Lonsdale Street. And what I didn't, hadn't noticed is that during the pandemic over the last couple of years, they've completely refurbished the whole thing. They have done this incredible job. And as I rocked up there, what shocked me was it was almost an exact replica of what was in London. There was the chapel. It almost it looks exactly the same. There was the Sunday school. There was the hall where they had their version of pattern intensives. And literally what I discovered reading the history was before even the service began, a congregation kicked off on, on Latrobe Street. One of the beginnings of Christianity in Australia, or in, sorry, in Victoria, in Melbourne, was 
a kind of pattern intensive, they called it society, of like 30 people who met in Melbourne. That's part of the story. So I went into the church and there was no one there. The door was open. So I did a bit of holy trespassing. The, the shadow of John Wesley is over everything. It is, a, it is a building built to Wesley. And that's true. It's called a Wesley church in Melbourne. But what I ended up doing, and the lights weren't on properly, which helped my burglary, but I could just read. And around the walls, often as you see in these old churches, there were these plaques to people. And I began to read them. And what I noticed was the beginnings of Christianity in Melbourne, which would turn into about 30 years after this, a full-blown revival. When the Royal Exhibition Building, the week or so after Federation, was filled with people praying. And what I noticed on the walls, it wasn't like there was a thing to John Wesley, but really you realize the heroes who had kicked this off were a bunch of ordinary people, but it just had their stories told in stone on these, these markers of people who passed away in the church. People like this one, Richard Hodgson, died 1885, highly esteemed and loved on account of the Christian virtues which adorned his character. What an incredible way to be marked. He was for more than a quarter of a century a local paid ministry. A lot of these people were like just doing other jobs and filled other positions of public usefulness with and outside his own denomination. Hugh Patterson passed away in 1891. For many years, a trustee of this church, in his days of health, he was a very active and successful Christian worker in the streets and lanes of this city. So they built that chapel. And then at the end of the 19th century, Melbourne, after the gold boom, went through this great recession. There was tremendous poverty. And where they were placed was on Little Lawn, which became basically this sort of real deprived area. And the church was able to serve them. He, this was one of those men. And this line just, just got me. After many years of intense suffering, he entered his rest. A man who, despite obviously having some incredible health challenge, was known as an active and successful Christian worker in the streets and lanes of the city who pushed through that even in the midst of intense suffering. There's heaps, but I just want to read you one more. And I'm going to be honest, I have read a lot about church history. I could probably tell you more about British or American church history than a lot of what happened in Australia. The first minister in Melbourne to ever lead a service. His name was Joseph Orton. He died at 46. He was born in 1795, about 15, 20 years after uh, sort of Wesley's main ministry was happening, died in 1842, born in Hull, England. He was a lay preacher, wasn't even employed. He would preach and he was employed in a shipyard. And then his heart was actually stirred by what was happening with the slave trade in Jamaica. And he headed over there and he's preaching the gospel, but also he was beginning to campaign against 
slavery. And the reaction to this was that the British imperial uh, uh, government or whatever in Jamaica actually put him in jail and he was incredibly sick. And so to recover when he's finally uh, got out of jail, he came down to Australia and came to Melbourne. And he led, just in a house, the first worship service in our city. Half Indigenous people, half European people. The church that you see in Lonsdale Street, the replica of what Wesley did in East London, is really the fruit of his labour. The whole time he's really ill because of how sick he was in prison in Jamaica. And he begins to set up this quite significant ministry of Indigenous people to the point where he sees that how the government of the British Empire, that there's a tremendous injustice happening against Indigenous people in Australia. So he gets on a boat and he goes back to Britain to petition Parliament and it says here, he, while returning to England to press for action on behalf of the Aboriginals in Australia, he died at sea and was buried just off South Africa in 1842, age 46. This is the effect of people who hear the call, who put down the nets and follow Jesus. We have forgotten many of their names. I'm ashamed that I didn't know who the first minister in Melbourne was, Reverend Joseph Orton. What an incredible legacy. What a countercultural story that we as Aussies often just, but look, this stuff, we don't tell our own stories. But this is the effect. And as I looked and saw these different plaques in the church, and I thought, I better get out of here before I become arrested. Um, I walked out and I walked out into Melbourne and I saw the cafes and I saw our city and I saw our city coming back to life. And the question I had was, what would it look like if again there were men and women in our cities who heard the call in a culture of endless freedom, in a culture of you can have it all, you can be anything. What if in the midst of this time, a handful, there was not a lot of people at this church, not a lot of people couple hundred. But this established something, a work of God, the kingdom of God. And we're at a moment where we need this again. So I'm going to ask you to stand. And I'm going to pray. And what I want us to do is I want us to readjust our concept of what it looks like when God works. There are incredible stories of revival and renewal and Moments where thousands come to faith, but most of the history I've read is just moments like this where people establish something, people make a choice, and the kingdom of God is advanced. So, Jesus, we just want to say, first of all, we hear your call. We hear to make you fishers, make us, you're calling us to make us fishers of men. And so we recognize that call has come down in different moments in history. We recognize that we stand on the shoulders of giants, not people with social standing necessarily, but people with great standing in the kingdom of God because they said yes to you. God, I just want to pray. We're not held back. We're distracted.
We are not shut down or seduced. And God, I just want to pray against the seductions that come in the form of the powers of our culture, but behind that, the powers and principalities that come against the kingdom of God. And God, we want to say yes to what it is to follow you. Help us to put down our nets, whatever they may be. Help us to follow you in a world which seemingly offers us endless freedom. We're saying yes to discipleship seems like an impingement upon our freedom. And so we want to confess. We want to say sorry for those moments where we thought we could have it all. We want to say the no's to the nets of the world in order to say the big yes to you. Amen. Let's worship.